Listen now to The Proof Podcast Season 2, The Murder at the Warehouse. How'd you find out something had happened? My mom called me and said, Lori, the police found a body, and they're pretty sure it's Renee. Right, right away, you thought right Jake. Right away. In my head already, I thought it was Jake. Season 2 of Proof is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Season 2 of Someone Knows Something from CBC Radio. We're telling the story in order, so if you're new to the series, make sure to listen from the beginning. Previously on SKS. We're like, uh, why would you do this? Like... She would go to someone's house, make money, and then come back out. I said, what, what did you do in there? You don't want to know what I do in there, but I make good money. Had you ever known anything about that before? No, not at all. This is surprising. We were basically, I guess, what people today would say, friends with benefits. Do you have any knowledge of when Cheryl stopped dancing? Cheryl didn't dance for... From when I knew her, she had stopped dancing. She had no need to dance. 15 minutes after her shift started, uh, Sammy, who was the manager at the time, he was like, well, where's Cheryl? So I, I saw him pick up the phone and I heard him say, you are not here, you're fired. And then we find out she actually is missing. This is episode four, Intimation. What do we have here? Just a lot of clipping from the internet that we did. Oh. And it tells you the date. There's a whole bunch of Great. stuff that was no, that's okay. All, that's all I put really all good. this for you, okay? Yeah, no, that's all really good. I'm at Odette's place, and she's just brought to her kitchen table an expanding plastic folder she's neatly arranged. and filled with papers from her closet. All cases seem to have these places where information sits in the dark until it's re-remembered or rediscovered. Page after page of handwritten notes, articles, and what looks like printed out Facebook posts from many people since 2009. Just a short time after Michael Lavoie was named the prime suspect in the disappearance of Cheryl Shepard. And some of the people posting appear to have known Cheryl. Can you see? I could turn the light on. I I can see this. So this is all... Was this all on uh, Facebook? Yeah, yeah. Betty did it for me. I was there sitting beside her when uh, I uh, was watching uh, all the... what people were saying. Recall our visit to see Betty, who married Cheryl's ex-husband, Keith Keeper Dale. Her chihuahua, Chester, was on my lap. Betty helped Odette in the early days of Cheryl's disappearance, searching and postering and also in keeping her up to date with some of the social media. Odette does not own a computer and has never used one herself. See, there's people here that's on a computer that I did not know. Wow. I don't know that this is all still online. I think it's all been deleted, right? That I don't know. I don't know. Some of this social media interaction is still online, and some of it appears to have been deleted. 
and it all seems to have been posted on pages dedicated to the memory of Cheryl Shepard. There's memorials, graphics of angels, and anecdotes by friends, statements by well-wishers, and a lot of writing by family and those who knew Cheryl well. But can public online information that's been sitting around out there for years contain anything useful? Yeah, it can. Wind is over here. I believe Cheryl would not be, would want to help other women who are in abusive relationship. That's the kind of person Cheryl was. Odette's reading the words of Gwen, Michael Lavoie's former partner. There's a lot of writing here by her. Here's some excerpts addressed to Mike on March 10th, 2010. Did you look into her beautiful eyes and know you went too far? Did you wonder what your children would think of you if you were ever caught? Did you cry and hate yourself for that moment? And then, in a different note, later, to someone else, Gwen says, I am scared that we will never know the truth. I am scared that we will know the truth. Powerful words. Odette spoke to Gwen in the wake of Cheryl's disappearance and would like to speak to her again, and so would I. This Michelle, this is the one I want to see. Okay. So this is, a, this is a Facebook post by Michelle, who is Michael Lavoie's daughter. This was done in December the 26th of 2009. Odette's pointing to a message posted on Facebook by Michelle, Lavoie's eldest daughter that he had with Gwen. Michelle would have been nine years old at the time Cheryl disappeared. She and her sisters were with Michael on and off during the Friday night and weekend Cheryl went missing back in early January 1998. Michael has denied to police that he had anything to do with Cheryl's disappearance. The cryptic note his daughter has written on Facebook seems intended for a particular person's eyes. Michelle writes, I know you're reading this page and thinking that this is some way to get back at you. But me being on this page has absolutely nothing to do with you. This is me trying to heal. This is me trying to heal, trying to get past all this. This is a place I can come and see that I'm not the only person who cares and hasn't... Hasn't forgotten about her. So when you come on this page and see that I have posted, remember this. Waiting is painful, forgetting is painful, but not knowing is the worst kind of suffering. This is the girl I like to meet, oh my God. What does this Facebook post mean? Does Michelle remember anything from the time of Cheryl's disappearance? In another post in April 2010, Michelle includes a photo of a tattoo she had recently got on her back. She says it's the tattoo I got for Cheryl. The tattoo looks to me like intertwined, stylized question marks. And there's a phrase. It says, not knowing is the worst suffering. Did you ever talk to the kids about any of this? His no, I, no, no. The police did, though. I talked to Michelle a couple of years ago. His oldest daughter, she would be, okay, um, she was nine years old when this happened, 98, so she would be 19, 
26 or 27 years old. She'd be old. in her late 20s. And she's up west right now. She's and out west right now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'd be interested in talking. I would to like her. to meet with her. I would like she, to talk to yeah. Michelle. Getting in touch with people can be hard in a cold case, gaining their cooperation and actually meeting them even harder. And above all that, every potential meeting and reinvestigating these cases between victims' family members and those connected to them triggers a special set of considerations and anxieties. Talking about this stuff dredges up a lot of pain, and I'd argue that it's important both for the case and the healing process, but people don't always agree. So wanting to meet with Gwen and her daughter Michelle is one thing, and actually doing it quite another. And I also have other people to meet and some stories to verify first. Just approaching Sammy Valeri's house. I still feel that face-to-face -face meetings are better than phone calls. But face-to-face -face means you also roll the dice. Will they be home? And if so, will they talk to you? Sammy was Cheryl's supervisor at the Tim Hortons back in uh, 1997 and uh, early 98 of course and Chrissy Cowley who worked with Cheryl remembers Sammy calling Cheryl on January 1st so I just want to see if Sammy remembers anything about the call or anything about Cheryl or the case that he could help with. Sammy Valeri's call to Cheryl introduces a whole new line of thought that might help Michael Lavoie's story. Valeri fires Cheryl. Cheryl decides, after hearing the message impulsively, to make money doing something else. What if the part about dropping Cheryl off at the Concord Hotel was true? What then? Oh, hi. Is Sammy here? No. No. Please ask him. Oh, I work for CBC Radio, and we're working on a documentary that we think he can help us with. It's Sammy? Yeah. Uh, he used to work at the Tim Hortons back in, like, 1998 at the Tim Hortons. I think so. I'm healthcare care of his mom. Ah, okay. Um, but is, is Sammy around, or is he... Uh, is he, he has all in house. I don't know that. Oh, okay. He lives somewhere else. Oh, this is mom's house. Oh, I see. What is your name? I'll try him at his other place later. Nice to see you again, Peter. In the meantime, I go back to Detective Peter Tom and ask him about Cheryl's work schedule before she disappeared. It's okay, so one of the things I was really interested in uh, learning from you about is Cheryl's work schedule. And do you have any idea of what her work schedule was around the time in late December, early yeah. January? From her uh, friend and colleague there, Paula Branton. Paula is Pamela's twin sister. Odette and I spoke to Pamela in the last episode near some parking lot propane tanks. Paula remains someone I also want to meet in person. Uh, Paula advised that Cheryl had taken the month off of December. Paula told police in an interview that Cheryl had taken the month of December off due to health reasons. Her first scheduled day back was January 1st and she never showed up for, for work that day and Cheryl told her she wasn't showing up apparently. Um, and then she wasn't scheduled after that. My understanding is that Cheryl believed that because she'd failed to show up, she wasn't, uh, she'd asked Paula to get her dismissal papers, basically. 
Oh, okay. Uh, so that's that's where that that came in. So there's no uh, in the from the file. I haven't managed to find a a work schedule per se. That's that seems to have come from Paula and another friend of Cheryl's, Tracy. Hmm. Paula, and now I'll try to find this friend Tracy to speak to as well. Okay, that's interesting. So did Cheryl think that she was going to be was fired because she hadn't showed up? Or? Yeah, that's reading um, what Paula and Tracy have said. That was her understanding. So in the phone calls, was there a phone call from Sammy Valeri? Uh, there was nothing, not in the recorded messages, no. So there was no message from Sammy that said you're fired? No. Okay, because that's what we heard. We heard somebody who witnessed him phone her and right. say, you're fired. Yeah. And maybe, leave him sh- maybe he spoke to her. Or it was allegedly a message, but maybe. Yeah. So she anticipated that because she wasn't going to show up, yeah. that she was done. Yeah, maybe in her mind. That's She's, interesting. Yeah, she hadn't been there for a month. And so. so that does that, I mean, does that lend credence to the sort of going dancing idea? It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, uh, they, were, they were on welfare at the time, so it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to jump from one job to another. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that o- that opens up a whole new slew of questions in some ways. If Sammy Valeri did leave a message telling Cheryl she was fired early on New Year's Day 1998, then Cheryl likely already listened to it. And that would explain why police say there was no message from Sammy on Cheryl's machine. What would Cheryl do if she heard such a message? Would she actually go dancing to make some money, even though that seems to be in her distant past? And would she do this with no known plan for returning to Hamilton when she knew she had to pick up her mother? I need to talk to the owner of the Concord Hotel, a man named Mike Manolovich. Was Cheryl ever there? But on the topic of phone messages, what messages were left after Cheryl disappeared on January 2nd, 1998? Answering machine messages, was were any of the machine messages germane to the investigation? Were any of them um, of interest to you? No, just confirming timelines, um, missed appointments, that type of thing. And the first missed appointment, do you have, can you recall somebody saying, "Where are you?" or what? What would that? When did? When was she first missed? By appointment, there were a number of friends called up asking for, just uh, congratulate her on her engagement. Where are you? That type of thing, and the content was what you kind of expect of someone that was calling to speak and uh, mm. keep getting the answering machine. And were any of those messages from Michael Lavoy? Um, there was one, yes. Oh, there was one? Yeah. So can you tell me about the content of the message? Um, no, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> but there was a call from him. Did, can you tell me what time it was? Um, Date and time? It was... Um, I think it was a Friday night. Or afternoon. Fra- well, that that's interesting. Yeah. That's maddening that you can't. So there's no. So was it a, was it asking for Cheryl or talking about Cheryl or? That was for Cheryl. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it would have been Friday afternoon. So last sighting was up to about twelve thirty on the bingo hall on Friday afternoon. 
and then he had to pick up his kids and drop her off, according to his story, by 6.45, 7 o'clock. So his message would have had to have been left between 1 o'clock and, I don't know, 5 o'clock or something like that on Friday. Police have confirmed that the call made by Michael Lavoie on Friday, January 2nd, the day Cheryl disappeared, was on a landline at 4.40 p.m. Lavoie claimed to police that he had made the call from his parents' place on Mohawk Road in Upper Sherman, about a 15-minute drive away from the Queenston Road apartment. But police say they were unable to trace the call to verify its origin. I'd like to know what was said or if the call was made from his parents. It adds to the timeline of Lavoie's whereabouts. Any message still active on the machine hadn't been heard by Cheryl and may also help determine her timeline on the day she disappeared. Perhaps Pat Lavoie, Michael's mother, can shed some light on this call. Oh, that's interesting. If they were just last seen together and he's leaving a message for her at that time. There's a number of strange things in ways to this investigation. I finish up with Peter Tom, and while I'm in Hamilton, I need to check out Betty Jurgen's garbage bag story and try to find the building supervisor she says she spoke to. Betty says the supervisor told her that he had seen Michael Lavoie struggling with large garbage bags on the weekend Cheryl disappeared. To find this person, I have to visit the former owner of the apartments where Cheryl and Odette used to live. His name is Roy Magna. Oh, hi. Is Roy Magna here? Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Um, we work for CBC Radio. People like Roy Magna are part of the process of investigating. Good morning. Oh, you're actually here, Mr. Magna. How are you? Important because they hold a single piece of information, like a name or a phone number. You get it, and then you pass through. We had a superintendent there. That's the person, yeah. And the superintendent was Art McDonald. He still works for us. Ah, okay. So you may want to speak to him. So he was there at the time. So yeah. that would be the person. You meet, follow the leads, to wherever they go, for as long as you can. Art McDonald was the person that I think Betty might have spoken to and heard the story of the garbage bags from. Okay, great. All right. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Right, take care. Nice to see you. Hello. How are you? Do you live in this building here? Yes. I'm looking for Art. I know, I was expecting you. Oh, you're Art. Oh, good. Okay, great. It feels like it could be the beginning of a successful interview. Art is wearing a cowboy hat and boots and a beige t-shirt with a confused squirrel on the front. I read the caption and it doesn't sound promising. I'm so old I can't find my nuts. Oh yeah, yep. Ask the wife. (laughs) The older you get, you know what happens after that, right? (laughs) I'm only 47, man. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Okay, but do you know anything? And you were the superintendent of 851 Queenston yep. at the time that yep. Cheryl disappeared. Yep. And how long were you the superintendent? Um, there? Oh, there? Ten years. Ten years. Okay. And, and at the time when Cheryl disappeared, mm-hmm. what happened? What happened at that time? I don't remember. Did police come and speak to you? I don't remember that either. Probably did, but I don't remember. That's my problem now. I don't remember something. Some things now. It comes with age, eh? Do you remember... Around the time Cheryl disappeared, seeing Michael Lavoie with garbage bags. 
And he said he was going to do laundry? I couldn't remember. Because I spoke to a woman who said she spoke to you. Okay. And that you told her you saw him with laundry bags so on that. It must have been true then. She wouldn't make a story up like that because the tenants were pretty good in there. But if you can't I trust remem- what she said. Yeah. This seems like something someone would remember. Maybe it wasn't art that Betty Jurgen spoke to. Do you remember where police searched in the building? All through it. Elevator, behind the elevators and in the staircases. That's it. Everything else is nowhere. No entrance. Furnace room and all that? Yeah, it's all locked. And did you search too? Did you look? Yes, I helped them, yeah. I walked with them for a little bit of time. And what were you thinking at the time? I wasn't thinking. I didn't know what to think. And they, they didn't say too much either. They keep it to themselves. Eh? I don't know. Just, I don't know. Then I was wondering if she's into the prostitution stuff. Maybe she's doing it for him. I don't, you never know. Just, I don't know. It's just something about both, both of them. Eh? But she was a nice girl. But she didn't get treated right. Eh? That's for sure. Art's suspicions and gut feelings here don't inspire confidence. But it was good to hear that a search of the building was conducted. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Nice okay. again meeting you. Yeah, yeah. Take care, man. Ciao. I head to 851 Queenston Road in Hamilton, Art's old building, and the place where Cheryl lived with Odette at the time of her disappearance. I want to see if anyone there can remember anything. I'm feeling drawn to the seventh floor apartment where Cheryl and her mother lived at the time. I want to see inside. This is the stairwell that leads out the back of A51 Queenston. I'm just going upstairs to see if I can find anybody that remembers Cheryl and what her apartment looked like and things like that. I want to see if this back stairwell comes out where I think it does, right next to Cheryl's old seventh floor apartment. If you were to go down on these echoey gray primered stairs, you come to an exit door that leads to a secluded area and small parking lot outside. But if you keep going down further, you get to the basement where there's a coin laundry, elevators, and the entrance to the underground parking lot. Odette has told me that Cheryl normally parked her white Buick in the underground lot, while Mike parked his gray van in the small above-ground lot out back. As I continue the climb upstairs, I keep wondering, on the day Cheryl disappeared, did she leave this building for the last time using these stairs? And if so, what state was she in? Unfortunately, there are no surveillance cameras to help tell that story. The current occupants of Cheryl and Odette's old place generously let us in just as they themselves are in a rush to get out. I don't know if I'd let strangers into my place, especially one holding a microphone and a camera. You want to make the pictures from our apartment? Apartment is renovated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No idea what it was, was it completely before. new, uh, like this one, when you moved absolutely in? Absolutely different. No, we did just this year. This is definitely it. It looks exactly like I pictured it. Kitchen, when you walk in, opening into the living room, dining room, balcony beyond. 
To the left, a small bedroom. And to the right, the hallway leading to two other bedrooms and the bathroom. There's something innately resonant about locations like this. The ghosts of the past that I've seen in Odette's photographs and her descriptions of the stories that played out here become more solid. Was this also a crime scene? Being here gives me a chance to look at the rooms, distances, the view from the balcony, the wall Odette saw with the circles, the room where she noticed the hockey bag missing, and a feeling for something intangible. This would have been Cheryl's room right here. This was the hallway that had the circles on it, the little points all the way along here. And there was, is there a storage room? But she, she disappeared from here? Uh, yeah. Probably she went somewhere, right? What do you need to make it? No, no, well, yeah, we just wanted to see what the layout was of the apartment. Mm -hmm. This is the place where the hockey bags would have been. Sir, can I get it? Can I take a picture just of this wall? Just of the wall? Can I take a picture off the balcony? Just nothing to do with here, just off the balcony. Thank you. Thanks so much. Sorry to bug you. As the door closes, I catch a final glimpse of the living room. And then, it's gone. So this hallway would be her hallway, right? It looks identical to what I pictured in my head. I approached the superintendent, but he wasn't here at the time, and knocks on doors of the few long-term residents in the building proved fruitless, as most of them weren't here in 1997 or 98. We're actively trying to track people who we know lived on the seventh floor back then, and maybe something will yet come of that. It takes time, sometimes, to find people. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. I love meeting people in cars. <laughs> this is my office. I take statements here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've been trying to contact Don Forgan, one of the original long-time investigators on the Shepherd case for months. And luckily, very recently, we were able to meet up in his car on an East Toronto street. Don's shaved bald has a neat mustache blue glasses to match his blue car, phone on a belt clip, nearly invisible hearing aid, and he's retired from the Hamilton Police Service. He's come into this interview without much time to fully refresh his memory from notes like Warren Coral did. I ask if Forgan knows anything about Michael Lavoie being seen with garbage bags. Yes, um, that would be Gerald and... Uh Sharon Davidson. Um, they lived 
in the same building and uh, they had a hard time pinpointing the date but they said it was after January 1st um, they ran into Lavoy in the underground parking again and he had bags of uh, clothing one was a green garbage bag the other one was a clear ba uh, plastic bag and uh, they recognized that it was clothing because they could see socks and and clothing in it Gerald Davidson could be the person that Betty Jurgen spoke to about seeing Lavoie with garbage bags. Gerald asked Lavoie, he says, I haven't seen Cheryl for a while. Uh, where is she? And he said, she's upstairs. She's sick. She's vomiting. And uh, he made another comment to, to the fact that uh, she's so sick that she, she hasn't contacted her mother. That's a quote from Gerald? Yeah, from Gerald. Cheryl phoned her mother on New Year's Day to organize picking her up at Toronto's Union Station. There was no mention of being sick, and it was a long call as the phone was being passed around to all the relatives in New Brunswick before being handed back to Odette to say her final goodbyes. If accurate, the Davidsons' conversation with Lavoie in the basement car park sometime after January 1st elicits more questions around Lavoie's Concord Hotel story. If Cheryl wasn't sick in the apartment on New Year's Day when she did call her mother, was Cheryl sick after her appearance at the bingo on January 2nd? If so, she cannot be both vomiting in her apartment in Hamilton and also at the Concord Hotel in Niagara Falls. According to Odette and what she says she found out from Michael Lavoie's mother, Pat, Michael told differing stories about where Cheryl was on the Friday, January 2nd, she's thought to have disappeared. Now, according to Forgan, here's another story in the mix from a different person. But I still need to verify what might or might not have been said about Cheryl's whereabouts with Gwen and Pat, and it's important to note that Michael Lavoie has denied having anything to do with Cheryl's disappearance. Gerald knew Cheryl from the Tim Hortons at Maine and Wentworth where she worked. I'll need to track down the Davidsons to get this story directly from them if I can. But first, Sammy Valeri, Cheryl's boss at Tim Hortons, one more time. Check, check. Sammy Valeri, take 18. I could hear somebody yelling in there. The lights are all off here too, right? So there was a dog <laughs> and then someone yelled and then nothing. So I guess we can just call back. It did, it did sound like there was commotion going on inside, and then it suddenly stopped. I'll have to courier a letter to Sammy Valeri so it's clear that I'm only looking for information about Cheryl. This is what it's like tracking down or verifying each piece of information that might be interesting. People need to know that every little piece of information makes a difference. Sometimes you get somewhere, and sometimes you don't. Hello. 
looking for a guy named Mike. Mike Malolovich. That's you? Okay, just a moment. Yeah. I've just walked up a wide paved driveway to Mike Manolovich's brown bungalow in Niagara Falls. Manolovich is the former owner of the Concord Hotel, the strip club where Michael Lavoie says he dropped Cheryl off. I need to get to the bottom of whether Cheryl was ever there. It's a warm day and most of the grass on the sizable front lawn is dead. An older man in a lawn chair by the garage that I initially took for Mr. Manolovich has gone into the house. And another man with a light green golf shirt, short gray hair, and glasses emerges. I can't quite make out what his dog looks like through the screen porch where it's barking at me. Oh, hi. You're Mike. Yes. Hi, I'm David. I work for CBC Radio, and um, we're doing a story about Cheryl Shepard, who went missing a long time ago in Hamilton in 98. And you owned a, a club called The Concord? And do you remember the case that I'm talking about, whether the boyfriend had said that, she, that he dropped Cheryl off at the Concord? Do you, did you remember seeing her? No, I never saw her. And so she was, she was not? No, 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 she never, that was a bullshit, whatever, whatever I mean. You didn't have any surveillance cameras, so you couldn't, on your place, eh? You couldn't, interesting. He's bullshitting dropping her off there. I know that because she never worked. She never worked there for me. You know, she never worked. And d- d- what happened to the Concord? Did it still? It's not still there, is it? No, it's. I sold it, so now it's country western bar. Oh, okay. So if someone had shown up at your club, say on that, it w- would have been uh, January second, nineteen ninety-eight, in the evening. If someone had shown up, a, a female, say Cheryl, and said, "Hi, I want to dance." What would you have said? So she would have to provide the license that she is allowed to dance in Niagara Falls. Right. Because there was a licensing that time. Uh, there was a license for Hamilton. There was a license for Niagara Falls. There was a license for Toronto. So if she got a Toronto license, she wouldn't be able to dance in Niagara Falls. She would have to go to the police board and get a license from them that she is old enough to dance. Oh, that's and interesting. So the police give the license? Yeah. Oh, I see. That's yeah, interesting. Police still doing it. Right. We asked police and other officials in Niagara and Hamilton if Cheryl was a licensed exotic dancer, but no records could be found. It has been suggested by police that dancers have been known to freelance at venues without such a license. Sir, I got no idea. Yeah. I got no idea. I even had two detectives come from, uh, from Hamilton to interview me. There's nothing there. There is... There is not, but, but she disappeared. Nobody, no, I don't know, she, did they find anything? No, no. no she no, just I'm disappeared, and that's it. Where is he? He's still free, free man? No, she never showed up. She never danced in my club. Never. Did she ever, did you ever see her? Like, has she ever no, been there no, ever? No, 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 okay. And did any of the other girls know her, do you know, or was there... Not the girls that they were working in my club, no. Really? No, because we were talking after, you know, after the, the camera left and the police, like, like you know, for a week it was a, it was a hot rocket, you know. Yeah, you yeah, had a, yeah. You had the t- uh, radio stations calling, you had, the, you know, police coming almost every day. So apparently, Michael Lavoie, the guy who dropped her off, he, he came to some of the clubs and showed her picture. You don't recall him doing that? Not to my club. Okay. No, sir. 
That's interesting. But Mike Manolovich told police when he was interviewed on January 5, 1998, around dinner time, that Michael Lavoie had just been at the Concord Hotel 45 minutes prior to police arriving. Lavoie had been showing a picture of Cheryl and himself. Nobody at the Concord, including Manolovich, recognized Cheryl from the picture when police showed it, but they did recognize Lavoie because they said he had just been there. And did you work at the club yourself at the time? Were you always on yeah, site yeah, and things? Yeah, no, no, I was there 24 hours. Police say that a woman named Laura, working at another Niagara Falls strip club, did recognize Cheryl when police showed her picture. Laura claimed to have seen Cheryl at the Mints Club six months before. Was Cheryl stripping at the Mints Club six months before she disappeared? If I can find Laura, I'll ask her. Back to Manolovich, and we've moved into the shade of a tree on his front lawn. Kind of a sad story, eh? Like that. Well, it is a sad story. What are you going to do? Something is fishing. Because, was it on uh, Hamilton, Hamilton TV station that they just got engagement? That's right. For a new, what was yeah, it? For no, a that's new, right. You remembered. New year. You remembered properly. Yeah. yeah that, so that yeah, yeah, New Year's yeah. Eve, he asked yeah. her to marry him, and she said yes. Yeah, there was a big show there on the TV. And what alley would he talk? Was he talking about? Do you think? Is there some side part or? Well, there, there was uh, my driveway. There was a concrete wall, and there was uh, my driveway to go in a parking lot. And that might be the alley he's talking about, uh, you think? I got no idea what he ta- was he talking Okay, that's great. Thanks very much, sir. Okay. Take care. Yep, have a no good day. No problem. See you later, man. From what Mr. Manolovich says, can it be surmised that Cheryl never entered the Concord Hotel? Even if she didn't go inside or dance there, it still does not mean Michael Lavoie didn't drop her off in the alley beside it. I want to get a picture in my head of this Concord Hotel, what Manolovich says is now a country western bar. Odette and I are finished with the Facebook posts and the embryonic plans forming to see Gwen and Michelle for now, and we decide to head down to the falls to see the old Concord. So we're turning onto Ferry Street, and we're just heading up the hill, and it's coming up on the right. And what I'll do is I'll just turn into this alley that's here. This must be the alleged alley that Michael Lavoie was referring to. I suspect that... Like, how would he know, eh, about this? Well, I suspect that he has been there before. Or or maybe he did drop her there. I mean, like, this big Texas place right here. That used to be the Concord Hotel right here on the, on the right. Oh, this one here? Yep, right here. Okay. And this is the alley right here that we're turning into. Oh. This is the little alley. Okay, one-way entrance. Yep, this is the little alley right here, and there's no doorways. And then there's a parking spot back here, and there's an entrance to the bar right there. But this is the back parking lot for the Concord Hotel. We drive down the alley, which is actually a one-way street formed by a freestanding concrete wall on the left side, 
and the building that used to be the Concord on the right. And we enter the back parking lot of a place that's now called the Big Texas. It's a bar and grill. According to advertising, there's a mechanical bull inside, but no more exotic dancing. And there's no dancing or nothing anymore? There's no stripping in there that I can tell. Uh, okay. no, but this used to be the Concord right here. Uh, we're sitting in the back parking lot. So that's the alley right there, straight ahead. I'm assuming the alley. That's the only thing that can resemble an alley here. Right, right. It's quite an open space. Yeah, because he, he, that's what he told me. He dropped her off in the alleyway, and I thought it was dark and everything else, but I could see it's not. No, it's not dark. It's not, uh, it's not like, you know, at night it would be dark, but uh, it's not like a an alley that goes into nothing. It comes into a big open space in the back here. Right, yeah. There's no doorway in the alley, so she would have, let's just play this story out, she would have come to the back, gone into the back there. Yeah, and yeah. his story was that he didn't look back to see if she even went in. Right? That's right. And he said he was late, pick, you know, like he had to go and pick up his girls. But the owner of the Concord at the time we interviewed, he said she never showed up didn't even know her. She'd never danced there. I'm sorry. I just want to find her. You know, it tears my heart out, honest to God. Oh my God. Did he bring her here or didn't he, though? Like, I don't. Like yeah. I, my gut feeling says that she was never here, but of course I don't know. And nobody does. But we can ask Michael. We can ask Michael. Yeah. Michael Lavoie has always said he had nothing to do with Cheryl's disappearance and says he did drop her off. As Odette and I ponder the scene, I notice a shiny black imported sedan to my left, driver inside with the engine running, and just beyond, a man in a heated discussion with a young blonde woman in high heels and a miniskirt. I don't think Odette has noticed. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm about a hundred years old, you know, like it's... What do you mean? It's just, it's taking the best of me, you know? Mm. To bring a child into this world. See her grow up and get up for a while for someone to take her life. Yes, I do want to talk to him. Get asked him a question. I'm going to mark it down, you know, a question I want to talk to with Gwen. Gwen? Gwen. Yeah. I'll write it down, a question I want to ask her. I want to meet this Pat also, if she would talk to me. Michelle and Michael? We'll think about it. Let's get out of here, though. Yeah. There's no point in staring at this building anymore. This alleyway. 
sorry. We drive away, and in my rearview mirror, the discussion suddenly breaks up between the man and the blonde woman. She runs to a sort of caged fire escape that leads up to the second floor of the former Concord Hotel. There's a steel door with a key code lock on it where she presses some numbers and enters, then runs up the metal steps and disappears inside on the second floor. The man returns to the sedan and it leaves the lot swiftly. I think I'll come back to get a look inside the big Texas. So let's go home. I think you've had enough for the day, eh? Yeah, I'll buy you a coffee. I'm supposed to buy you the coffee. No, that's okay. Okay, well, there's got to be a coffee shop around here somewhere. Oh, I got me crying too. Do you want a donut with that? Do you want a donut? I think you want a donut. I think you want the donut. No, you. (laughs) No, I I want the donut. (laughs) That's the excuse. David wanted the donut. I had to stop and get one. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Sure, I'll have a donut with that. And then you can get one too, right? Yes. (laughs) Every place visited, every person spoken to, Every document read can reveal something new, verify something heard, give way to an overwhelming feeling that we're on the cusp of something related to a solution. But it can also come at a cost in burnt nerves, bad memories, and frustrations in those Sammy Valeri moments when we can't move forward right away, those tattooed feelings we cannot yet understand, and Nightmares of endlessly echoing stairwells that descend into the dark. The human mind can revel in the chaos, but there has to be hope. And I think we've gotten at least that so far, on top of the donuts. Later, as I go over the posts and comments made on Facebook, I notice a name that keeps coming up. A person whom I've discovered was involved romantically with Michael Lavoie, around the time Cheryl disappeared. A woman by the name of Sheila Darbison. You have been listening to Episode 4, Intimation. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to see a 360 video of the alleyway beside the former Concord Hotel. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen and mixed by Cecil Fernandez. The series is also produced by Chris Oak, Steph Kampf, and executive producer Arif Nurani. Our theme music is by Bob Wiseman, with vocals by Mary Margaret O'Hara and Jess Reimer. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.